just to remind you, in case you can't remember, I am Mrs Jenny Summers, Deputy Head of English and Drama at John Hunden Grammar School. Liz is my lovely colleague. And I'm Mark Till, I'm the, the Head of English here. And we got a second se series, can you believe? They yeah. gave us a second series. <laughs> Uh, we got what Alan Partridge never got. We got a second series. I got um, the difficult second And series. I reckon new regime this time. When we get student emails in, so if you're if you're listening to this and you're at year seven and your form tutor's making you listen to it or something, <laughs> or, or right through to being a sixth former, if we get an email from you to either Mrs. Summers or to me, engaging with the podcast, saying you recommend it to a friend, asking a question, recommending a topic, uh, house points I knew you were gonna say for that. interactions with the podcast. So right. thank you for listening. Get involved. Loads of house points. Right. I love the fact that, Mr. Till, you're already going for the Machiavellian takeover of the podcast here. <laughs> just, just threw that in there. No advance warning whatsoever. Just threw it in there. So thanks for that. Let's uh, introduce our lovely panel of guests this afternoon before we get on to our distinguished guest um, himself. Uh, yes, I'm Dan. Uh, I do uh, English, politics and history. And I'm a senior prefect and member of the debating side. De vice president now. Yeah, mm, really. Very important fact. Hello, I'm Finn. I currently take music, English, and religious philosophy. I'm also a member of the Debating Society and the SAR for the Debating Society. <laughs> the SAR, that sounds yeah. great, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, I'm Xavier. I do maths, physics, does maths, chemistry. I have no idea about any of this, and I also turn up for debating. <laughs> wow. At least you're hiding it well, Xavier. You're not, uh, <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. And of course, we've got our distinguished guest, and let, I'm hoping I'm going to get all this right, assistant head, Mr. David Samuels, who teaches politics and RS. Am I also Gee, correct? Yeah. You. I'm glad I got all of that right. <laughs> it's a good start. Um, and let's start with my favourite first question is why Machiavelli, which is the chosen topic you've gone for today? Why did that of all topics stand well, out? Two reasons. I had a lovely term at university, went to York, where in the summer term it was the entire only module I did. I had one period per week, so I was working very hard that summer. It was about Machiavelli and it's always stuck in my head. Um, but also he's a really interesting philosopher who doesn't come up at any point in the curriculum anywhere in any subjects I'm aware of. Um, and I think he's somebody who's much maligned for being possibly someone who wasn't really. And that makes him really interesting because his name is a, a byword for scheming and slyness and being very kind of dodgy. Um, so he's an interesting character to dive into. Mm -hmm. oh, fascinating. And um, could you just give us a very brief background for those of us who have, you know, not me, of course, I know loads and loads. But those who might not know of Machiavelli, could you give us a brief outline about him? Of course. So um, his full name is Niccolo Machiavelli, and he was living in uh, Florence, which is uh, now part of Italy, but at the time it was its own big city-state, very powerful, very wealthy city-state. Basically, it had lots of banking, uh, more or less invented international banking, and rule. Um, and um, as part of uh, his life, he, he got lucky in that um, the uh, Medici family, who were this very wealthy family who controlled Florence at the time, they fell from power, were chased out by some of the other houses, um, and Florence became a republic uh, where they chose who was going to lead it. And Machiavelli became essentially the prime minister of uh, Florence in, in, in modern times. Uh, but it didn't last. Uh, the Medicis uh, did what uh, Renaissance Italians did uh, best, which was where they went schemed with various other people, um, including the, the dreaded French, uh, who'd got themselves together into a state, um, and they got back into power. Uh, the Medicis were not particularly um, pleased by Machiavelli. They chucked him out of office uh, after torturing him for a bit first, but they decided he wasn't that much of a threat, let him live in the countryside near Florence. 
Um, and Machiavelli, a lot of time on his hands, uh, did what a lot of people do when they're out of office. Modern politicians do this too. They start writing books um, and uh, plays in his case as well. Uh, but he wrote two books that are really important for us. One is called The Prince. Um, and this is a weird book because in many ways he wrote it to try and basically suck up to the people who were in charge of Florence. Um, some people think he was basically trying to get his job back. Um, it didn't work. Um, and he another, wrote another one, which is a history book, which was sponsored by the Medicis, um, which is all about the Romans. It's called The Discourses on Levy. Um, and that one also talks a lot about politics. The interesting thing about him is the two books say quite different things about lots of stuff. Mm. Um, and the thing, reason he's quite interesting is he is somebody who doesn't spend much time worrying about the moral nature of things. So mm. a lot of philosophers up to this point, especially in Europe, they're all good Christians. They're all saying about what a good leader should be like, what a moral leader should be like, how Christian they're going to be. And Machiavelli doesn't have much truck with that. He likes to say, this is how you get power. This is how you use power. This is how you exercise it. Um, and he's not above a bit of um, violence and uh, scheming and getting rid of your enemies and things like that. Over to the panel for first questions. Well, yes, I suppose one of the questions. So is this a sort of like first dip into the ideas of sort of pragmatic political or sort of ruthlessly pragmatic, I suppose, ruthless political uh, sort of strategizing that sort of thing? Is, is that what it's about? I think that's a, a good kind of reason to pick it out. Um, so Bertrand Russell, who's a very famous British philosopher, picked him out for particularly that reason and said he was the first person to actually just write down, well, this is what's happening. Because all of the uh, Italian city-states were up, up to this. So there were a lot of assassinations at this time of, of, of family members, um, and, and they make great stories. The Medicis and the other family of the Borgias, who a lot of people might know, is I think they're the baddies in Assassin's Creed, but there's also <laughs> lots of <laughs> films and TV shows and things like that based on them. Um, and they'd happily poison their enemies. They would sack cities. Um, one of the reasons Machiavelli became famous in the first place, he had a revolutionary idea for warfare in, in, in Italy, because at the time, people used to hire their armies they were called the condottieri um, and uh, the thing about hiring armies is that they're very happily bribed again uh, and also very happy to run away uh, because it's not where they live um, and so his idea was how about we actually employ people who are Florentines to defend Florence and then they might not run away um, and lo and behold that worked um, and actually part of the reason why Florence became so powerful was he invaded, invaded Pisa and took it over um, which is now famous for its leaning tower basically by bribing the condottieri there to go away um, and so um, it, it's a point about trying to think about what actually works and being quite ruthless which arguably is what happens in politics nowadays he's not much of an idealist um, but he's describing what a lot of the politicians at the time were doing they were scheming they were forming alliances they were breaking their word they were doing assassinations and things like that he's describing what they were doing whereas a lot of the other philosophers were saying maybe what they ought to have been doing um, so you clearly just said that the Condottieri um, kind of solved that problem um, with uh, the idea of armies for uh, Florence, the Florentians themselves. But do you think he was inspired in, a, in any way by their actions because they were quite a prevalent force during his childhood, I seem to recall. Um, so do you think their style of doing what benefits themselves most inspired him in any way in his, any of his thoughts yeah no absolutely so in particular he was a fan of some of the borgias um so the borgias were this this family who are kind of renowned for being um very scheming i think is, is fair to say so one of them rodrigo borgia um became uh, the pope which at the time involved a lot of scheming i say at the time <laughs> uh, but but certainly at the time it involved no a lot of scheming popes. indeed <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a catholic so i'm 
gloss over that. <laughs> um, so um, the, the, there's this um, kind of uh, myths around how, how they got to power. His, his uh, daughter, Lucrezia Borgia, became renowned as somebody who, who went through an awful lot of um, different husbands, many who mysteriously died from poisoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, often there were kind of political marriages. Um, his son was a um, conducere captain himself. And so he had a habit of getting into uh, alliances, defending places and things like that. After he'd made his fame, uh, he was employed to look after a city in, in, in uh, Rome. Um, he turned up, realized they had very few defenses and he quite liked the look of the place. Uh, so he just kicked out the, uh, the government and took yes. over. Uh, he then decided to stab the very southern mercenary captains who were working for him in the back and took over again. Um, and there's a lot of thought that the prince and some of the things that uh, Machiavelli was writing about in it were referring to um, some of the antics of the Borgias and the other conducieri um, in, in being very ruthless in what they were up to. So is he, is he a man? It sounds like you're almost saying he's a man of his time because we talk about him a lot today, but it's interesting that it seems like he was responding very clearly to the, the situation he was living in. Or is there a sense that he still has resonance? Do his ideas still have resonance and relevance today? I think that's a really good question. So th- there's three reasons why I think he's enduring. Um, the first is, um, like Dan was saying, he's probably the first person to be very blunt about realpolitik and saying mm. you know, you've got to be very ruthless. Um, The second is that inspires a lot of English literature. So um, there's a lot of theories. He's writing about 100 years before Shakespeare arrives on the the scene. Uh, Shakespeare, I believe, uses the term a Machiavelli to describe one of his characters at one point. He does. It's in Henry VI, part three. And he has the future Richard Richard III, when he's still Gloucester, say that he's so scheming he'll send the murderous Machiavel to school. Hmm. Even more scheming than, than Machiavelli. Yeah, excellent. So he's already in the kind of literary canon at that mm. point. And, and um, as with so many things with Shakespeare, that's the first recorded kind of use mm. of it in this sense. But a lot of Shakespeare's characters are like this, you know, the, the Iagos and, and so on of the, of, of the place. Um, and that's a literary trend we've enjoyed for a long, long time of this kind of scheming, devious kind of character, whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's Game of Thrones or whether it's Vanity Fair and Becky Sharp and people like mm. that. So loads of these kind of characters are really interesting. Um, the, the slightly tricky thing for us is for other people, they think that the prince is a product of its time and also a product of him trying to get his job done. And they look at the discourses and say, hang on a minute, this guy is not quite as ruthless as he might sound. Um, and he inspired a lot of later political thinkers who think he was a great liberal thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the things he mentions are, one, that it's really important to have checks on power within a city so that different people have different power and it's shared out so people can't abuse the power within a city-state. The second thing is he talks about the importance of freedom for individual citizens um, and the importance of um, that um, ability for people to have rights within the place where they live. So some of the really famous liberal thinkers are like uh, Rousseau and Locke um, read about him and are all inspired by this importance of individual freedom as well. Um, So it's very difficult to know what he was really about. You know, was he this this scheming politician who, who did a good job in, in, in Florence and then felt very put out when he lost office and mm-hmm. wrote a book blaming all the other people, which is a, is, is a thing we know now because <laughs> former prime ministers <laughs> like to write an autobiography. They normally defend uh, what they chose to do and um, blame everyone else for, for the bad things and take credit for the good things. He's doing a bit of that, um, but he's also um, kind of putting forward a lot of ideas that are very much of their time which are not really that relevant nowadays 
Um, but it's an interesting one because if you if you pay attention in a, in an airport bookshop when we're mm-hmm. allowed to go back to airports, how often the prince appears in the W. H. Smith section. Curiously, under business, um, often. <laughs> uh, so there's some people who think this is still a useful handbook nowadays. So I'd question whether that's that's true. Do you think it's a contradiction though? Surely, in order to understand why you might need certain checks on power and certain protections for individual liberty, you need to have a good sense of how those things can be abused. Maybe it was the fact that he knew about the workings of power that meant that he was able to see how people would have to stand up if they wanted their individual rights. An idealist couldn't have done that, maybe. No, I think I think you're absolutely right there, because he doesn't assume that uh, that, that people are good. And there's passages mm. in it saying that a leader has to be very strong and prepared to do bad um, because men are not good. And if men are not good, then you need to act in a way that, that reflects that. Whereas a lot of the prior philosophers focused on how do you make a society where everyone is good, um, including the ancient Greeks, including most of the medieval philosophers. And he just changes that and says, well, actually, lots of people aren't good. And again, that that influences a lot of later kind of philosophers, both conservatives and liberals, um, who worry about how do you set up a society where a lot of people's instincts are not always good to create a framework where people can live in harmony. So somebody like Thomas Hobbes, um, who uh, is a later English philosopher who kind of focused on how do you get a system where um, despite people's worst instincts in some situations, you can have a society where people are reasonably happy and there's rules and structures in place to allow people to have their freedom. Um, I mean, I'm just I'm trying to apply this sort of to to modern society because yeah, I I do think that that there is a lot of uh, parallels between the time now and the time then because a lot of people, almost all politicians, think what they're doing is right and they will spout out the ideals of like the like the Catholic philosophers at that time they'll say, oh this is what we should be doing right, but then there's also that contradiction that they are doing the scheming at the same time. Um, I can't really think of where a question uh, of this is. Well, I, I think uh, there's, a g- there's a good point that links on to that. And perhaps you, I, I won't name names, but you can think of modern politicians where oh, this might mm-hmm. apply um, of all different political hues, I might add, um, is that Machiavelli says it's more important for a leader to be seen to be good than to actually be good. And you can probably think of modern politicians who've been quite good at, uh, at that. Um, so there's an element of that. There's an element of, and I think this is a, a, an enduring thing as well. He said that, people for the most part were reasonably contented um, as long as you don't mess around with their property um, and you know allow them to kind of live their lives in peace which is potentially something true as well because we see a lot of people who are not that worried about politics as long as you know they themselves are not bothered you know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing you can you can debate um, but th- there's certainly sort of modern parallels I think well uh, well you you, went, you mentioned earlier sort of him being a liberal and then inspiring people to be I know I've got to say that's, that does seem to parallel with some of I, I uh, planning to do politics at university. Um, and some of the things that I've been reading. So, for example, with Mill, who was a, a later liberal thinker, um, yeah, generally speaking, this whole idea of, you know, it's better to be seen to be good than to actually be good. I think there's a sort of utilitarian bent to that, where if you're saying as a politician, ultimately, once I'm in power, I will make everything good, then the the end goal is that you get into power and the means by which you get to there don't matter so much and so you could say from a utilitarian point of view that that sort of is is justified and is, is ultimately good because the end result would be good um and i suppose it's sort of interesting to think that the thinkers sort of as late as, as Locke and mill who are 
you know, still pretty relevant today because Locke was sort of big inspiration for the U.S. Constitution, for example, um, has still sort of been affected by this person, what, 1400, something like that, mm. uh, 1400, 1500s. Um, it's, it's interesting. How, how do you think, uh, for example, like, he was able to get these, sort of, these sorts of ideas out and get his sort of name recognised in the first place? Because I would imagine that sort of a book that some ex-politician in, in Florence would have wrote wouldn't really sort of come to the you know front desk of every library you know even 200 300 years that's that's a really good point um he wrote lots of plays as well most of which are pretty forgotten now they were popular at mm. the time apparently um the prince wasn't published in his lifetime it was published mm. after he passed away but the discourses were published mm. um and so they were well known um there were various people who denounced it mostly from the papal states so the time that the Pope was in control of quite a lot of northern Italy, um, but it got spread around various other places. It would have been something that a lot of um, people of the political classes would have gotten got their hands on, um, and it gained a popularity that then then stuck in the stuck in the mind. Um, and so it, it seemed to to, to to catch, you know, some people uh, as something that was relevant to, to them and what they were doing. Um, some of them probably saw it as a, an opportunity to to, to do kind of um, to, to follow that model you know like I said earlier that that handbook for gangsters kind of description <laughs> of it um but he was described as a tutor of evil uh by the catholic church at the time it was banned in various places so you know a lot of people at the time were scandalized by it in the same way that some people thought it was fantastic and other people were perhaps just um inspired to have these kind of characters we we, we like to hate or like to examine <laughs> what we were talking about earlier and then pretty soon you're getting the opposition to the catholic church which came along with the printing press so I guess, in a sense, a, a manuscript like that, over the next century, it was the right time for ideas to be spreading right mm. across Europe, mm. as we get printing presses in every kind of major city in Europe. Mm. So um, it seems that Mr. Summer's previous question about modern society took the thought right from my head. Um, <laughs> what I was going to ask is, do you think that Machiavellian ethics have a place at all in today's society? And I ask this again because I know nowadays we don't really take kindly to totalitarian states. Um, but what do you think about, for example, the Extension Rebellion co-founder Roger Hallam saying he would block an ambulance carrying a dying patient in order to get the group's message across. Mm. Well, that, I mean, that's an interesting point about the, the lengths to which some people will go to, to get their message across. Um, I don't think so. I, I should probably say I, I don't personally admire what he says. Cause I, it's not <laughs> the kind of thing that, that, that inspires my kind of particular views on it. But I think he's very fascinating in what he thought and what he wrote. Um, there's an aspect of me, though, because um, we like our politicians to think our politicians are being honest and wanting to keep their promises and having our best interests at heart and acting morally. But there's an element to which we hope some of our leaders are not doing that. Um, you know, I, 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 there's an element to which we like to think that, I don't know, MI6 and people like that who are keeping us safe or um, will do that. Equally, there's a strand of thinking that, you know, people will want a politician who is reasonably strong in as much as they want someone who's going to defend their country. It's a reason why a lot of politicians, the kind of strong man style politicians that are popular in parts of the world um, are often popular, even though they are repressing people's freedoms. Um, which is a tricky thing. So I don't think that kind of politics would go down very well um, here. Um, the particular example you've given, I mean, personally, I, I have trouble kind of seeing that point of view, even if it's something you feel very strongly about, but you can see the, the lengths to which some people will feel they're going to do that. Though in his case, he's not really somebody in a position of power. Um, it would more a parallel if someone like you know Boris Johnson decided to, 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 to strong arm in that way. 
just to go back to your point about you, t- you talking about that strongman belief, what it, is it that makes certain countries, certain societies slightly vulnerable to that idea of that strongman and that idea of that slightly more ruthless Machiavellian approach to gaining and keeping power? Why are we in this country, I mean, uh, this is making us sound, I'm not saying that we're wonderful and perfect by any stretch of the means, but what is it that means that we've managed to keep a kind of thoroughly democratic approach whereas other countries have sort of fallen prey perhaps to that slightly Florentine Machiavellian type approach to politics? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question that, 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 that you can apply to lots of different countries. So there's a handful of countries that have got a long democratic tradition and in many cases it's because of something that has been built up over a long period of time there's a lot of checks and balances and power there's lots of ways in which politicians can't do exactly what they'd like to do that doesn't mean they don't necessarily have periods of good governance followed by bad governance and Mm -hmm. vice versa it's just most of those safeguards make sure that the 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 country's still standing after that happens Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's not to say that a country can't have a traumatic period where there's a leader who's doing their best to roughshod over constitutional uh, kind of precedents, uh, thinking of no particular North American country uh-huh. in particular at the moment. Um, a lot of the countries that have that particular um, kind of strongman uh, style government at the moment, we're kind of talking about former Soviet states. Mm. And most of those former Soviet states um, had very short-lived democracy, if any, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Most of them had a big power vacuum when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and a lot of those people had links to um, kind of spy agencies like the KGB and more or less swept in and took power straight away and have done so ever since. Um, there's an element to which some of this is easier in a developing country, um, according to political science, because people's concerns will be more focused on security, stability. Do I have a roof over my head and food? Uh, whereas mm-hmm. the wealthier a society is and the more prosperous society is, people tend to start to agitate more for individual freedoms and political freedoms and things like that. Which is the interesting political trends in a lot of East Asian countries that, that now um, have had totalitarian states but are now having an increasingly educated, well-off population who are much more likely to start agitating for political freedoms and civil rights mm-hmm. that go alongside um, most democratic, liberal countries. Mm-hmm. Mentioning no China in particular. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> So a fascinating look at uh, a complex character, more complex perhaps than uh, we would have thought when we began today. But before we um, move away completely, Sir, is, uh, as you know, you know, as he hijacks this at the beginning, has got some. <laughs> we're going to start with you, Sir. Uh, I've invented. I've invented something for series two, which is getting to know our member of staff guest each time by having a quick fire question round. So I'll do some quick fire questions, and people can jump in with their own quick fire questions of things that you would like to, in an appropriate way, I have to say, <laughs> find out about Mr. Samuels. Are we ready? This has to be 60 seconds. We have 60 seconds, quick right. minute. Mr. Samuels is going to time and can chip in with their own questions. 60 seconds to find out about Mr. Samuels. Go. Go. Favourite James Bond? Uh, Daniel Craig. Favourite flavour of crisps? I don't really like crisps. Oh. Favourite snack? Um, mm, fruit, mostly. Favourite book? Um, ooh, 1984 and QI. 1984. 1984. Yeah. Any superpower you could have? Uh, perfect memory. Ooh, mm. I love that one too. What animal would you be if you had a choice? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm a new parent again, so I reckon a bear because they get to hibernate for several months. <laughs> yeah, that would be <laughs> ideal. Favorite, favorite musical? Does one have to have a favorite <laughs> musical, <laughs> or indeed oh ever dear. have to see them? <laughs> that was very revealing. Wow. <laughs> 
I say Final Seven? I've got Final Ones. Okay. It's about history. <gasps> Going over the deadline. If you could live in any historical period, Ooh. which period would you live in? Uh, Edinburgh during the Scottish Enlightenment. So uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. That was good. I like the quick fire round. Maybe no, it'll become I a regular thing. Maybe Mr. Summers will decide that will never happen again. No, we'll see. It. We'll see. It'll be exciting. I liked it. Are we still doing clues, sir? As I don't have one this time, so it'll <gasps> be a clue next week. So you're covering that up yeah. by just coming up with a totally new segment. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. So we're, you know, we're getting back to it's season two. We're learning some new things. We're adding some new bits. We're trying some things out, and hopefully it'll uh, make a pleasant learning experience in the end. Um, so it really just remains for me to do some thank yous to our fantastic guest, Mr. Samuels, today for giving us some fantastically enlightening new, uh, you know, sort of springboards for we can go and do some more reading and watching and listening and so on. Uh, and thank you to our lovely sick formers, um, particularly, you know, as I, some of them naming no names, I slightly bounced into this at the last minute because I was not prepared as much as I should have been. Uh, thank you to Mr. Phil. And of course, thank you to my fantastic uh, team uh, in, of technical brilliance as usual tom Owen, andrew barney etc so thank you in advance for your editing skills of course um obviously follow us please on youtube it's under jenny summers with an i that would be lovely follow us on twitter at jhgs english do you want do you have any twitters in your no, no, no nothing <laughs> in the land of history as well something to consider for the future um yeah and it really remains for me to say you know hope you enjoyed hope to you know, hear you and hear from you on email, as Sir said, get involved, get some house points and uh, perhaps and be a future panelist. Go and, to the voting. And use the word Machiavellian in English lessons. Yes. I'm going to actually... As an adjective. I'm officially going to make that my next word of the week. Machiavellian. Follow on from schadenfreude, as nice. it is at the moment. It seems to have a nice <laughs> ring to it. Fantastic. Take care. I hope you've attained some secret knowledge and we hope very much to see you soon.